all of our Title I staff answers walkie calls. We have 20 teachers answering walkie calls. We even sometimes, because sometimes there are times of the year that there are more calls than others. We have fifth graders that have a post-it on their shirt that says, I'm on a walk and talk. And they're walking the kindergartner around. Welcome, everyone, to Resilience Conversations. We are so excited with our guest today. I'm here with Ginger Lumen from the Resilience Team. This is Rebecca Lewis Pankratz, and we also have the amazing Jessica Harris from Indiana, who is going to talk to us about implementing an on-call system in your building. An on-call system? What's that? I can't wait to dig in, Ginger, because I think you're going to be just thrilled. (laughs) And we always like to start with kind of a check-in. And is there anything that any of us just need to bring to this space today to let our folks carry with us? Hmm. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, I'm Ginger. I'll I'll start in here. You know, oftentimes when we ask this question, I always have some sadness carrying with me, uh, just kind of just personal relationships that kind of people in my life uh, struggling. And so there's always sadness I'm carrying with and for them in the background. But uh, but today, really, what's in the foreground is I am so glad my dog for the past couple of days has been pukey and poopy in really not good ways. And I found a carpet cleaner that works beautifully. <laughs> and by the way, the dog's feeling good too. So I've got a lot of glad all around that right there. <laughs> so Ginger, of course, we all want to know what carpet cleaner that is because we've all dealt with carpet cleaners that don't work. And so oh you can gosh. kind of look that up for us. Yeah, I took a picture of it because it, it really, I sprayed it on this stain that you're going to be like, this is never coming out. And I said, no, it's got it. Well, I looked it up. What's the best? And I looked at a couple of different websites. Uh, Nature's Miracle, uh, not not uh, not sponsored, should be. Uh, Nature's Miracle Scented Enzymatic Stain and Odor Remover. And it works for pet stains like magic. Just saying, Jessica, in case you ever need. Yeah, go ahead. Write that down. <laughs> Thanks. Jessica, how about you? Anything you would like to bring to a check-in this morning? Um, Here in Indiana, we have, including today, seven days of school left. So we can call call that six. And so we have all of the busy craziness. And in my personal family, we have one kiddo graduating kindergarten and one that's graduating fifth grade and moving to middle school. So we've got some two pretty big transitions and lots of things going on. So one thing we do at our school all the time, and I do at my classroom is we, we do wish you wells. That's something that comes from conscious discipline. And it, we keep it as a norm in a routine where people, even when they're not here, they just know somebody at Mayflower is wishing them well. So from Indiana to Kansas, um, with all of the end of the school things and things you guys all have going on. And for all the listeners, we wish you well. Oh, that's beautiful. And you know what? It is so perfectly indicative of Hoosier hospitality. She's doing a check-in and wishing us well. I love <laughs> it's it. It's a real thing, y'all. It is a real thing. Jessica, we cannot wait to dig in because you have been a part of creating an ecosystem that really is trauma responsive and is good for everybody in the building. And so I always like to kind of start with the first question just because it is a reflection of my own journey. How did you get into the trauma-informed school space and was there a lightning bolt moment for you? Yeah, I love how you use the word ecosystem. I wrote that down too because I think that's a really good way to, to describe what we have going on at our school now. 
for me personally, my career, this is my 15th year teaching. And I'm a general education teacher. People will always ask with the classroom that I teach now if I have special training or a special degree. And I always say, I'm, I'm just a normal teacher, which means anybody can do it. Anybody can work with these kids and love these kids. You don't have to be some uber professional. You, you can be the teacher that you are today and be able to love hard kids and hard places. So I started teaching first grade and probably my light bulb moment was my second year teaching. And I had to date, he was maybe the second most difficult kid I've ever worked with. Really, really, really big behaviors. And I just learned so much from him that year. I learned so I had to really think outside of the box. I learned as a second year teacher to quit trying to, he's not going to get in my box. I need to sometimes get in his (laughs) box and just find out what works. The goal is that we get to where I want him to be. It doesn't matter how we get there. And I just fell in love with working with hard kids. I think seeing his change over time meant so much to me that it made me just, I was endeared to him. And by the end of the year, he he did qualify with an emotional disability and they were looking at a self-contained classroom and I counseled them out of it. I said, please don't take him from my room. We have made so much progress, like make him consult only, but I know we can get him through. And so after that, I would see my, my principal with kindergartners because I taught first grade, you know, that we're really struggling in the hallway and everybody kind of thought I was nuts because I would knock on his office door and, and be like, I really want that kid next year. So it just became kind of a personal passion. I've always told my, my uh, students that I love teaching, but my favorite thing about teaching is just teaching kids to become great people. So SEL and character traits are things I've incorporated since I student taught. And it's just kind of who I am as a person. So I, when I switched schools to be with my own children, the principal here had known me from the prior school. I taught second grade, still took all the hardest kids. And we were really running into some problems with a, an extensive amount of suspensions and disproportionality. And we decided to start a self-contained classroom that was not for IEPs, but to eliminate suspensions. Like how do we keep these kids at school and still hold them accountable and still teach them the behaviors we want? And she said, do you want to help me create this program? And I said, yeah. So that's how I kind of got started here. But I think it's been a a long path of learning from my students and and personal growth. And then um, I think we just keep getting the right people here who all have the same mindset and we keep bringing more and more things to the table. And so our school's kind of gone through its own journey. But that's sort of, I guess, my path to getting into the trauma-informed movement. Jessica, you said so much right there, but what I think is really powerful is when a system, like a building, shifts from what do we want to get rid of to what do we want to create, and then you start to attract these resources as people, as thought, as possibility, and so you just kind of know when you've shifted into this generative space versus this reactive space, and so, oh my goodness, Jessica, tell us about, I think when we did Bridging to Resilience, your on-call session where you were teaching folks about how do you build a system that supports kids and provides opportunities for educators who are also stressed. We want to know all about that today. Okay. We started about, um, we've been, our school here has been working to become, you know, a trauma-informed school. This is probably our ninth year. And as I said in that presentation, we didn't get real good at it or find much success until maybe 
four years ago. Mm-hmm. So the first half of that was really challenging because just like every school will find, you know, there are different philosophies and we had to go through that hard, like those birth pains of we have old school and new school. We have these, we, you know, different belief systems and we have to either find a way to align them because you have to be able to do things cohesively and consistently across your building. So I want to make sure that we always let schools know this isn't something you just can jump into and expect it to work right away because then when you go through times when it doesn't, it's easy to just give up on it. But about four years ago, what really helped us is we started something called our adversity team. And these were teachers that volunteered. They knew they would receive additional training. They were passionate about our school moving this direction and knew they would be in a leadership role where they might have to do some extra work outside of school, but they would be providing professional development and some other things. Part of what we did with that team is we created our on-call system. Starting with that adversity team was really successful our school for our school because up until that point, it had been more of a top-down mm-hmm. situation where our principals, our counselors, myself, we were trying to, to talk to our staff about using these different methods. But when we were able to present the same things from a group of teachers, classroom teachers, it was easily accepted because their teammates were already seeing these things working in their classrooms. So before we even started the on-call system, we really needed to have a group of people able to implement it that teachers already bought into. Um, And we found that their own peers were really the right way to go with that, as well as some of us as well. Our on-call system is a really awesome support system that's totally changed our school. And I I think that other schools would would not if they could see me when they hear what, what we started with. What we were finding is we had teachers that would do everything they could with a struggling student. We had lots of students with big behaviors, trashing classrooms, Mm -hmm. you know, throwing desks, furniture, being aggressive, being violent. Teachers do the best they can. They know that they're, you know, we have a principal and assistant principal. We have a, a social worker. There's not a lot of people to call for help. So they don't wait until it, they wait until it would get, you know, to the crisis point. And then they call the office. I need somebody in here. We have to clear my room. And um, if you've ever been trained in any type of, you know, crisis intervention, you know that once it's at that peak point, it's going to take at least 45 minutes to an hour to be able to de-escalate, make repairs, clean up, and start fresh. So we had classrooms that were displaced for long periods of time. We had students in crisis missing lots of instruction time. So waiting until a, a child has you know, exploded and reached their crisis point was just too late. What we did was we took our adversity team and we trained our staff to understand the crisis cycle, to be able to recognize when kids are just agitated, when they're getting triggered, the triggering point, when they're agitated, when they're becoming, you know, closer and closer to their explosive point. And they're able to now call for help when a child is just like triggered or agitated Mm -hmm. instead of having to wait for the child to reach the climax of their escalation cycle. The reason we can do that is because we have our on-call system. We started with our adversity team, just a team of teachers. I believe there are about eight of us, teachers, our social worker, myself, that were fully trained in how to de-escalate students who needed help. And we all signed up for different spots on, we just made like a calendar. Teachers signed up for their prep times, their lunch times, or times when they had interventionists in their room that they could step away. 
which is not something you'd ever want to ask from your teachers. Right. These are teachers that were willing to do it. And we also understood that you're not going to be called every single day mm-hmm. on your prep. It's just when you're available, right? It's mm-hmm. like just being on call. We have walkie talkies in our classroom. And if you're on call during that time, you flip your walkie on and you listen for a call code to come across. And I'll go over what those are in just a minute. But those are the people who started responding. So instead of just having three people, we increased our numbers to at first 11 that were able Mm. to respond. We created six different codes. And so if I'm a classroom teacher and I have a student that's becoming agitated, I can call our office. And our secretary will radio out whatever code we're calling. So these are these are our options that we came up with. And you might have other things that your school would need. But we have a walk and talk. Uh, walk and talk means I just need somebody to come pick this child up, take him on a couple laps, build some connections, you know, talk about what might be happening or not, and then help him transition or her back into the classroom. Mm-hmm. We have hangouts. Uh, a hangout might be. I think this child can get it together. They just need a little bit of extra assistance right now. And I'm not in a position where I'm able to work one-on-one with them, but if an adult could, they'd be just fine. These are good for kids who have a hard time getting started or have some anxiety. So you can call for a hangout and get an adult that will come in and, and be like a very short-term temporary para five or 10 minutes. And they are able to help them build some positive momentum. And then they, you know, remove themselves from the classroom. The third one we have is a flip-flop. I really said we needed this one because as a classroom teacher, this is the one that I would have wanted most. When I had a student that was escalated, I did not want somebody else coming and taking them for me because I know that whoever sees a child through their crisis or through their struggle is the person who built the most powerful relationship, right? Mm -hmm. So as a classroom teacher, I never wanted to send my kids to the office or send them somewhere else because if I could do that hard work, I'm going to become their trusted person. Amen. (laughs) So we created the flip-flop, which means I can call and say, I need a flip-flop in my classroom. And another adult will come and manage the rest of my students so that I can work either in the classroom or outside of the classroom with the student who needs some help. That one's my favorite. We do have a delivery. We don't need to use this one as often anymore. But initially when we started, we would still have kids that were getting office referrals and we still do. Those have gone down substantially. But when you have a child who needs to go to the office for an office referral and they will not go, a delivery means a person who feels safe and loving will take them and they don't have to take them directly. They might do a walk and talk first, de-escalate, get them calm, get them a snack, and then say, you know, we're going to go to the office and get and get this fixed because that's what we do when we make mistakes. We just fix them. And so it's not about being in trouble, but it's about getting to the right people to help us fix what, what went wrong. Mm-hmm. And then we do have a clear the room. If we need to clear the room, our kids are trained in what we call a candy drill where they just know to line up quickly and they make a few laps around the school and get a skittle at the end. And by the time they're done, you know, and they're able to come back, the room is safe. But when we started the system, we had candy drills in every classroom across the school all of the time. And now they are very infrequent. We might have a few a year. Wow. But it's great to know that if you need to remove your class quickly, you can just go ahead and go because this system means that an adult will be there to stay with the, the child in crisis within a minute. And then the last one we have is what we call a search and rescue. And these are for students who elope and might need somebody uh, to find them and find out what's going on. 
get, again, get them de-escalated and return them to class or to where they need to go. Yeah, Jessica's like, oh, we got a runner, right? And, we, and some kids just are runners. And so I'm really interested in the candy drill. So as kids who would be kind of the kids that normally are the ones taking laps around the building and getting a Skittles, we know that it is commonplace in American schools, especially our elementary schools, to have to clear classrooms. I don't think that folks who aren't a part of public education understand the depth of just the chaos that can ensue when kids aren't okay. And number one job is to keep every kid safe. So what is always fascinating to me is that schools don't have a really good way to talk about this with students who are constantly being cleared out. And so there ends up being this more alienation for the kid that is kind of at the center of having a room cleared. Mm And so talk to me about the mindsets, the beliefs, the attitudes that you've seen with students that are a part of the candy drill. The students that are that are leaving the room or remaining. Yeah, the ones that are leaving the room. So what we've done with that is try to I don't want to say normalize. That's not the right word. But we our goal and when we're working with our kids, we always still need to be thinking about the other, the other. Mm -hmm. Right. And we don't want them to be traumatized by what they see or witness either. And that doesn't just mean the student behavior. It means the adult response. If we have a true crisis where we have to have a restraint team come in or something like that, that can be just as traumatizing to those other students. So our goal is to be able to not only get them out quickly, but we don't want them to feel like they're in a dangerous situation. So, you know, if we're going everybody out, let's clear the room. That, that feels scary, scary and that feels unsafe to all of those other kids. And our goal is that they know at Mayflower Mill, they are always safe and loved and matter. So the candy drill is something that we practice just like we practice a fire drill, a tornado drill, a lockdown drill. So it seems like just like those things are good things because they keep us safe and they give us practice. We practice a candy drill. So that it feels like when when it does happen, this is why we practice this. So we can move out quickly and the kids don't feel like it's an emergency. They feel like this is a procedure. So it's just creating, Mm -hmm. you know, it's making it more procedural. And the other thing, because we do a lot with neuroscience and we do a lot with calm corners in our building, our kids already understand that if they're doing that and they do witness whatever is happening with the child or, or see them getting escalated. I mean, even our kindergartners will say, oh, he was in his amygdala. He needs to go to the calm corner and take some breaths. Or their teacher can Mm -hmm. say, you know what? Mrs. Harris is coming in and she's going to help him get calmed down so he can be in his prefrontal cortex and he can come back to class with us. So it's even just the way we talk about the situation to those kids, you know, where it's not he's being dangerous or bad. It's, you know, we he's having some big feelings right now and That's why we have people at Mayflower who can keep everybody safe. I so appreciate that, Jessica. The way that we have language and approach when these types of things happen matters so deeply. And I think it's the adults that oftentimes get really hung up on what the little kids who are witnessing it are experiencing it. 
are experiencing while they're seeing it. And you're right. Once kids have language and a way to understand what's happening to a classmate, sometimes on a regular basis, like they they want that classmate to be successful and they also want to please the adult in the room. And so when we can make those things all kind of live together as, hey, this is just how some people experience school and we have a plan and we work with this and we are all heading in the same direction, which is to safe environments where kids can learn and be in their cortex, right? And so, I don't know, that is brilliant. Ginger, what's coming up for you? Um, Lots, I really, uh, I'm just gonna confess, at first I misunderstood you, you said the adversity team, and I heard you say adversity team, and I thought, what a brilliant term, is that we're like teaching through adversity, about adversity, I thought, wow, that's why I wrote that down and stole it. But no, that was great. Uh, We talk a lot about uh, tagging in and out. But the way you've laid out these six uh, strategies of the walk and talk, the hangouts, the flip-flop delivery, uh, clear the room, search and rescue, and then the way you talked about how often each of them is done and, and, and how you laid them out as each one is with a more accelerated and more intensive need uh, or, or shift or, or strategy to help kids come back into regulation. Uh, I think that makes it a lot more clear. You also talked about how, you know, it's very normal for some staff to say, okay, I hear these things. I need to see it in action first. And I talk about that a lot about how people, there are three types of people and there's probably more and this is not research, but it's just my own anecdotal observations is that there are three types of teachers, people who are like, what, something new? I'm going to try it right away. And others who just want to dabble a little bit and others who say, I have to see it working first. And we really need in a school system all three of those types of people to make a big shift uh, because you can watch it and, and you deserve to watch it because eventually you will start doing these things. There's no, there's no option on that, but we're going to give you space to watch it just as we would give kids space to learn at their space and their time. I think when we honor our adult learners in making big shifts, we learn how to honor our younger learners in making big shifts as well. You've, you've said a mouthful of brilliance here, and I'm, I'm glad to be to be part of sitting and listening here. Sitting at Jessica's feet, right? That's, that's, yes. oh, that's what I was going to say, but I thought yeah. she's not literally. I mean, okay. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, you mentioned the tag tag in and tag out. And I do know a lot of schools are trying to do that where they, you know, somebody can come and relieve you as a teacher for a few minutes. You can compose yourself and come back, which is nice. And the reason why we went this direction a little bit more is because we're supporting the students. So it's really helpful because we're, we're building those relationships with our actual students, you know, but we're still supporting their teacher. Mm-hmm. As a classroom teacher myself, I might he- hesitate to tap out because I know when I come back, I'm going to have to kind of restart everything, my routines again, you know, because somebody might have been managing my room. But if the kids got a little squirrely or, or something else, it might take me more time just to get right back into my teaching routine for those few minutes where maybe I just need some help regulating the student, or maybe I just need some help being able to regulate them myself. And so then it's like twofold. It's, it's helping that student and it's helping the teacher as well, because they just need some support, which is really neat. It's been really powerful with our kids. You know, those top three, the walk and talk, hang out and flip flop is what gets called for most now because our teachers are trained and they're able to catch it when it's just, you know, aggravation. But if something goes awry quickly, we have, we have other things in place. 
But now our kids are beginning to advocate for themselves. I would say after the first year, instead of the first year was challenging because the kids are so used to if somebody comes, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. You're You're calling my mom. And so I would literally go in, crawl under a table and be like, I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help. (laughs) I'm just here to help you. Or using phrases that make it feel more casual. Like you want to just get out of here for a minute. You know, so that the kids would understand this is normal and this is okay at Mayflower. Within, you know, a year, I wasn't trying to coerce kids out of the room anymore. They would just come with me because they understood what it was like. And now with by the second full year, kids were asking, they were walking up to their teacher and they still do now. Can I have a walk and talk? I'm feeling really frustrated. You know, I feel like I need a hangout. Can a teacher come and help me? Or our kindergartners, it's super cute. They'll they'll say, um, I just need a walkie talkie. <laughs> so me, it's just, it's really neat to see that not only can the kids advocate for themselves, but again, it's teaching. It's teaching them that this is how I feel. This is okay. And here's how I can get help. Which is resilience. I mean, that is resilience, right? I'm seen, I'm heard, people are with me, and I can learn skills to understand what's happening in my body and also to meet the challenges that are in front of me, right? Because that's the thing I always want to help people understand about this work. It's not about coddling kids and letting them off because things are so difficult for them. It's about creating systems that work for everybody in the building so that we can be more successful. And I think that's one of the biggest questions that, Jessica, tell me about your learning data. You guys have been on the road for a while. And so tell me about the math and the reading scores. So our course now, this is the hard year to ask that after COVID when everybody is a grade level and a half behind. (laughs) No pressure. Um, What we have seen that's really interesting with our kids, when we look at our data, our kids come in as some of the lowest in our district. We're in an interesting little spot. We are a more of a rural school, but we're within a couple hours of Chicago. So we do get a lot of transient kids that come from Chicago you know, hoping that this was going to be a better place. Mm-hmm. But they come in far below in just normal vocabulary and background knowledge, you know, that they mm-hmm. that they don't have. Their number sense is not developed. I mean, they definitely come in way behind grade level across the board. When in Indiana, they we have a rating system. Our school usually ends up being a B. It's kind of like a report card. And even if our scores are more in the like 75th percentile. And the reason we're able to earn a B is our scores are, I don't want to say inflated, but we're able to get credit for the amount of growth. Right. So where our yes. kids might still Amen. be a little bit behind, we, and across the board, our kids show a lot of growth. Our high kids show growth, not only just our low, our kids that are the lowest, I mean, they show growth as well. So that's one thing we're always pretty proud of is that we are able to grow kids. And I really think the big reason behind that is we start with getting our kids regulated. We connect with them, we build relationships, and then they're motivated and willing to work Mm -hmm. and want to learn. Mm -hmm. But we still have a ways to go. But whenever I see that the the growth improvement points, it's, it's reminding us that we're on the right track. And, you know, lots of access to safe, supportive, available adults that care about success, each kid. Every kid, each kid. The Ginger, I know you'll probably have one more question, but the other kind of question that is always really important to my heart, Jessica, is what is the 
experience for educators in the building around mommies and daddies and grandmas and grandpas. Some, I, I always feel like that's a really meaningful place to continue working is the way we view our kids that are experiencing a lot of adversity and their families. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to clarify, speak to our relationship as a school with our, our parents and families. Yeah. And then also the belief systems that you think some of the people inside the building have about those outside the building. Yeah. I think that's another thing that's improved a lot. Part of my job in the classroom that I work with with kids who have been suspended, um, parent involvement is a requirement. And a lot of people have kind of like rolled their eyes at that. I thought how, you know, those are usually the parents that, you know, people anticipate are not going to be involved because they they are constantly getting negative phone calls. You know, there's been a breach between the school and, and home relationship. So that's kind of my favorite part. You know, I, I have an intake meeting with every parent and a lot of our parents can't come because they don't have transportation or they're working. And so I do this, but this is not just me. This is just how our school works. Like we, we do what we need to do to make our parents successful. So I'll go to their apartment. I'll, you know, I'll pick them up and bring them back if they want to have the meeting at school. Our principals will provide transportation. Anybody yes. in our building who doesn't have a class of students will provide transportation. Or if if they're home with babies and they really can't even come to the school, I'll meet with them at their houses, their apartments. I've gone to Walmart, McDonald's, their jobs and worked with parents on their lunch breaks. Whatever they need, we just accommodate because if we're truly going to be a team, like it's not just you have to come to me, like we're doing this together. And so I think that that's a big thing that we do. And the other thing is it's genuine. So just like our kids, you know, you can pretend to like them, but if you don't really love them, they know it. They know. And our parents are the same way. So we, when we communicate with our parents, we just talk to them like real people. I share with them the struggles I have with my own children at home. Mm-hmm. Like this is a no judgment zone. I get it. I have a 16 year old. <laughs> like I've had some, some hard times too. And so being able to relate and connect with our parents by just showing them that this, that we are not at a different level than them. Another thing we do as a school a lot is we just text with our parents. Yes. You know, it's, they don't always have access to email or are able to take a phone call and just knowing, you know, Mrs. Harris doesn't mind if I have her personal cell phone number because I don't, you know, because we're a team and we're a team and I trust you, that's made a big difference. So we have students, parents that maybe wouldn't have normally called the school in the past. They'll text six different people in the building and say, my child ran out of medication this morning. It might be a rough day. Let me know if you need anything, you know, or, um, you know, so we get a lot of information ahead of time. It was a rough night last night. This happened in our home. Thanks for keeping an eye out for him. So I think just being relatable and having an open door policy, you know, I tell parents, you can show up with no warning. You can call me, you can text me. These are your children and I'm grateful to work with them, but they're your babies. So we're a team come in and our office staff, our principals all have that same philosophy. I love that. And I found that air quotes, those parents, uh, that's air quotes for those who aren't seeing this here. When they find that we are willing to be different than what their previous experience of school has been for their kids and for themselves as, as students when they were, they seem to be really, really grateful. 
and they're more willing to want to show up and be part of. I love that you talk about texting with because uh, that's I had I had I've had family members you know reach out to me at 4 a.m. and you know I didn't shut down all that connection from everybody because one parent had troubles with boundaries. We just had a conversation there and uh, and still kept it open for others. Uh, I hear a lot. Well, I'll never I'll never give parents my number because, you know, because of one family. And, you know, Ginger, I think that Jessica says something really important, and I just know how you operate in the world, too. You said they can have my personal cell phone number because I trust them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I think that so oftentimes we get caught up in this idea that trust is earned mm-hmm. when really, you know, like parents trust schools enough to send their kids there every day, and they hope that the school holds their child in high regard. And, you know, we need to understand that when, because sometimes I think, Jessica, what I, what I notice is we'll start kind of heading in the right direction with kids and mindsets, but the next place that we work from is the mindsets about families, because you'll still hear this idea of good guys and bad guys. And everything that's going on with this kid is really mom's fault, and let me tell you all the ways that mom screwed up, right? And it, it just always, like, is daggers in my heart. And I'm like, oh, there's so much opportunity there for you, mom and kid. If you could just imagine something different than what you're seeing right now, because I guarantee mom is dealing with a ton of issues with no resources and probably a story that would break your heart. Mm. And mom needs us. And so we can keep the walls up and say, we'll take care of this broken kid that you've sent us. Or we can be like, hey, we're all moving in the same direction and we see each other and I need you just as much as you need me. Mm. And your kid needs us both. That's what our world needs more of anyways. Right. We're all people and we all have our own stories. Hmm. We all looking out for each other. Oh my goodness. Ginger. This Jessica. Makes me super happy to have this conversation this morning, Jessica. Mm. So one thing I want to kind of close this up with is an appreciation for you, Jessica. So Ginger and I will both give you an appreciation and then just kind of wrapping up with one thing we'd like to take away from this time today. And so Ginger, you want to kick her off? Absolutely. I've got, oh, Anne, how much time do we have left? Uh, The one that's really coming up for me right now is I really appreciate, one, you taking the time on a Tuesday morning this close to the end of school to to lay out very clearly both the fact that y'all have been working on this for nine years and, and, and you gave us some of the uglies along with this is the path we're moving down right now, which seems to be doing really well. I expect that if we talk to you in another five years, there'll be a different conversation because it's a growing moment. And, and I feel that from you, that it is really moving and learning, but that you're still willing to share your journey so that others can follow the breadcrumb back to, back to their own places where they want to be. Absolutely. Ginger, thanks. Jessica, I appreciate the way that you have never backed down from moving towards kids that need us the most and also creating an environment where those kids and all kids are successful together. Like it's just evidently clear to me, evidently clear is that, yeah, that there's an anchor that, that gives you a true north. And you just spent some time with our people today showing them that, hey, hard work, the journey's never done, but we can get fruit from our labor Mm -hmm. and we can head in a direction that feels really good. And I I know it's a hard job and people get tired, but I would want to show up at your building every day as an adult. Mm -hmm. And I, I just can imagine that kids do too. And so I just appreciate your vision. 
something I want to take away today is that creating these little systems don't have to be so complicated and cumbersome that it feels unattainable for, for a building. Like, hey, there's some, and Jessica, is it okay if we steal some of that, if our listeners steal some of your stuff and try and make that work in their school? Absolutely. And it will grow and evolve. And it for us, it got easier and easier. And I, I did forget to mention this, that we started with, you know, these 11 people that could respond to calls. And as people saw it working, every year we, we open it up and say, does anybody else want to be an adversity team? And now our adversity team is up to like 20 teachers. And then our special ed and support staff aides wanted trained. And so we did crisis training with all of them. And so now all of our Title I staff answers walkie calls. We have 20 teachers answering walkie calls. We even sometimes, because sometimes there are times of the year that there are more calls than others. We have fifth graders that have a post-it on their shirt that says, I'm on a walk and talk. And they're walking the kindergartner around. You know, it, you're going to start small and it, and it might be a lot of work, but for us, it has gotten easier as, as it's become more of a norm in our building. So don't give up on it. Just in case anybody sneezed right at that moment, she said that they have fifth graders who are going on walk and talks with younger students. Just in case you sneezed in that moment, I want to make sure you heard that. Jessica, again, we wish you well. Thank you. Thank you so yes. much for having me. Wish you guys well too. Okay. Bye bye now. Bye.